Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where we talk about Ari's uh, life with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all the medical issues that he's dealt with over the course of his life. So in the last episode, we talked about the failure of Ari's first kidney transplant. And um, this episode, we're going to talk about what happened after Ari's first transplant failed. Yeah. So your experiences with in-center dialysis and that period of your life after the failure of the first transplant. Yeah. It was interesting last episode because we were talking about the failure of your transplant. And I think we were both kind of worried a little bit about reassuring the audience like oh i know this sounds dark and this sounds bad but we swear things will get better for ari as the story continues yeah and i was i don't know felt a little bit like oh what is it peter falk and the princess bride like don't worry the eel doesn't eat her right 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 uh but i it made me think a lot about that feeling of even when we're talking about this we've done a whole podcast now that's devoted to talking about your health there's still that worry about making people feel bad or telling the sad parts of that story mm-hmm and it reminded me a little bit of one of my all-time favorite <laughs> Onion headlines. Because <laughs> I, was, I was talking in the last episode, too, about... I, I made fun of a little bit all those inspirational stories about the people who, you know, always you know, have this terrible illness and they do all these amazing things and everybody feels good to hear that story. Yeah. So one of my very favorite Onion headlines that always makes me laugh is the loved ones recall local man's cowardly battle with cancer. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And it makes me think about the the pressure to be inspirational and happy and light, even in the course of dealing with the disease. I didn't know if you had more thoughts about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of this fetishization of struggle, always, that like somehow just by struggling, one becomes a hero. And I don't, I, you know, I, I guess I, I have a lot of thoughts and no thoughts at the same time. Like, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous, but at the same time, we're doing this lengthy multi-episode podcast about my capital S struggle, which I feel ridiculous even saying that way, um, because it it is life-altering, but I don't, you know, I don't think that because of my disease or my struggle, I'm, I don't know, a a hero or I've, yeah, I I have a, a lot of trouble with that kind of labeling and that kind of, like I said, fetishization that like, I don't know, a really long time ago, this came up in one of those situations where it comes up and you don't expect it to, or I didn't expect it to. And I remember somebody saying, I didn't know them that well, but they, they just said, I'm really honored to know you. And that's a, you know, that's a, a really sweet thing on one level, but they weren't saying it because of, say, my work as an educator, or they really loved what I do as a musician, or because I'm, I don't know, funny, or interesting, or anything like that, or a good friend, or, you know, I don't know anything else. It was just, suddenly you know that I have this problem that I deal with largely silently, and have been dealing with as long as you've kind of known me, and now you're honored to know me because of that. And that feels silly, and I, I I reject that, but at the same time, I don't want to, like, go, well, thanks, jerk, you know, because... Right, they're trying to be nice. Yeah, they're trying to be nice. They feel a thing that's authentic for them. So, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's a lot of stuff, and it's nothing at the same time for me, in a, in a way. Well, I think that part of it is any story you tell, but the story of chronic illness, you always tell it incompletely. Yeah. And so... When you have that, the, the inspirational story or somebody had their courageous battle with a disease, 
it's always one part of it. There are moments, of course, where when facing a, a challenge, somebody does something and it seems really strong and it seems like this really great inspirational thing. Sure. But there are going to be other moments where it sucks and they don't seem so strong. They seem like a person dealing with a hard thing and having a really hard time with it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that too, like, I am not your saintly wife who takes care of you. <laughs> no. Sometimes I kick butt and I'm doing great and I'm keeping our lives together while you're not doing well. Yeah, lots of times. And sometimes it really sucks and I'm impatient and sometimes I'm short-tempered either with friends or sadly sometimes with you. Right. And that's hard and you can't like you can't write the whole newspaper headline about our perfect life and how we always deal with this the best possible way and how it never gets us down or anything like that but at the right. same time when we do the podcast i have that we both worry about are we complaining too much <laughs> yeah well i mean what you said reminds me of sort of one of my favorite onion headlines which is some version of like facebook version of couples relationship going very well and I think both of these speak to the same kind of thing, that there's always more going on than the outward appearance that people at least attempt to project. You know, we, we, I've talked about covering a lot, and um, we mostly just kind of deal with whatever we're dealing with um, and then go about our rest of our lives like it's not going on. So to, to transition back to the chronological telling of this story... We ended with your transplant failure in the yeah. last episode. How old were you when your transplant failed? I must have been 21. Okay. And so now you've dropped out of college and you've been to the hospital. They, um, So what happens actually for our audience when a transplant fails? Explain kind of the process and what you have to do and what happens next from a medical standpoint or as the patient <laughs> right as a patient yeah because i don't know how typical my course was um but basically um i know i've referenced acute rejection and chronic rejection i was in chronic rejection which means it was irreversible and that means that they kind of have to let it take its course and that's a strange thing because they can start you on dialysis at some point because dialysis is not a great thing for your body they don't want to start it too soon. Um, so they kind of have to wait for the kidney to, like, stop working or for its function to slow down enough that you are, again, sick enough that you need dialysis, essentially that you meet the medical standards for starting on dialysis. And how long did that take for you from when you knew it was going to fail to when it actually you needed dialysis? Well, weirdly, in retrospect at least, I remember being very impatient to start on dialysis because I was feeling terrible and I felt like dialysis would make me feel better. And in a way I was right, in a way it just more stabilized how I was feeling. Uh, but it was months, it was several months, and I was kind of assuming, okay, it's the kidneys failed, let's just start dialysis then because that's what you do, especially because like we talked about last time, I had been blacklisted for a year. So we weren't going to be immediately doing another transplant workup. We weren't going to be doing all of that stuff and prepping for that in all the many ways that that means. I was just going to be sort of enforced sitting around. There was definitely I couldn't go back to school. Um, because you were too ill. Oh, I was far too ill. Uh, you know, all the 
all the remake issues and Uremia issues that I was having at at school that had made me uh, that had made me drop out were worse and worsening by the day week. Um, and so, yeah, there was no way I could go to school, but or there was also no way I could work. Uh, so I was really just sitting around waiting to maybe feel better or basically waiting to feel worse enough that they said, OK, now we can start a therapy. So now you need to start dialysis. Yeah. And just a quick recap, because it was episodes ago when we did a brief explanation of dialysis. Sure. This is the process for if your kidneys don't work, this is a machine that will artificially do the work of a kidney. Yes. So they have you have a fistula in your arm, yeah. or other people have fistulas and stints other places, but Ari has a fistula in his arm. They stick two needles in, one, a big tube of blood goes into the machine, goes through this crazy mad scientist, Rube <laughs> yeah. Goldberg, artificial kidney with pumps and everything, and then the blood goes through the whole machine and goes through another tube back into his arm. Right. How often do you have to do dialysis? What was your prescription? My prescription, I think they adjusted it a couple of times, but my prescription was three days a week, which is pretty standard, uh, four and a half hours, which was not. What do you mean not not Uh, standard? Standard is usually three to four, depending on the size of the person. Usually if you go above four hours per treatment, it's because you're a very large person, meaning you just have a lot of blood. You know, bigger people have more blood in their body. Uh, and I am not a big person. I'm 5'9", and at the time, I think maybe I maxed out at 130, probably less than that. I'm, I'm a small dude, and so I don't have a lot of volume of blood, and my doctor wanted me to get basically the longest, most dialysis he could give me. But, you know, five or even six hours, which I understand sometimes people have done, is just too long, and like it inter- starts interfering with scheduling. Mm-hmm. for the people at the dialysis center. To give people an idea. So you're doing in these three days a week for four and a half hours, the machine is doing the work that your kidney would be doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right. all the time. So that's a very weird kind of process. And yes, before we get into what that does to your body, I think the most helpful thing would be if you could walk our listeners through, what is the process for in-center dialysis? You drive to the center, then what happens? I was fortunate to go to a pretty small um, clinic. I want to say we had about 24 chairs, which is pretty small. And they had about three shifts. And that's just important in terms of waiting time, which is what I was going to say. So you get there and you have a scheduled start time. And if your center is on the ball, and mine was, then you go in and you get to go sit in your chair. Before you do that, you have to weigh yourself. And the weighing is very important. And why is that? Well, it's it's very important because you want to know how much fluid to take off. You're no longer producing urine, which is the main way that your body gets rid of excess fluid. Uh, Water, quote unquote, is what we, everybody's talking about, how much water did you put on? You know, you don't want to have extra water because it gathers around your heart and it's really bad. And I, again, I said something really quick, like it was no big deal, but obviously that's very serious. So you weigh yourself and they compare that to basically what has been determined is sort of like your ideal weight or your base weight. And that's usually in metric because it's science. (laughs) So they weigh you. And then if 
your bed is ready or your chair is ready, and mine always was because I was the first shift, so I started about 6 a.m. You weigh yourself, you sit in your chair, they take your blood pressure, and then you wait until a technician is ready to put your needles on and start your machine. Okay, and just to, to pause it right there at the weighing, because I think people will be curious, about how much weight are you typically going to lose in these four and a half hours on a machine? It really depends on the patient. I was a remarkably compliant patient, and so you're not supposed to put on more than about two kilos of water in between treatments, and that's about what I did, especially during the time period we're talking about. That was It was very common that it was two or less every single day very consistently. A kilo is 2.2 pounds, so that's 4.4 pounds of water. So my weight would fluctuate every couple of days by about five pounds or less. Yeah, just to confirm for people listening, you're doing three days a week, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Initially, it was Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Oh, interesting. Yeah, just because that's when they had available at that center. And for reasons we'll discuss later, which was the, uh, the job, the teaching job that I eventually was doing during that time, I asked if it could be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because I wanted to have my Saturdays free for marching band competitions. Um, and Monday, Wednesday, Friday was uh, the more desirable time slot. So eventually I had seniority and a chair opened up either because somebody moved or occasionally people, um, people either go to hospice or occasionally pass away. And so that's usually how you get openings at a dialysis clinic, those three things. Well, did anybody get a transplant? Um, yeah, sorry. That is the fourth way. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Weirdly, you know, dialysis is mostly older people. And older people tend to be, for a lot of reasons, less likely to be transplant candidates. Uh, maybe their health is just so poor. Maybe they're just not into it or are believed to not be able to handle the responsibilities of a transplant. Um, it's usually the first three things I said. So after a year, I moved from Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday to being Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we haven't discussed this, but you brought it up. The fact that you have Alport syndrome, which caused your kidneys to fail at 19, makes you unusual at the dialysis center, and it makes you unusual among kidney patients because you are much younger than the typical kidney patient. Super unusual. I was younger by 20 to 40 years. Yeah. Definitely, I was the only person there under... 30. Um, often I was the only person there under 50. You know, I'm the only person that doesn't have gray hair usually. So get to get back to the process. Mm-hmm. So you get on the chair and you wait for a technician to come get you on the machine. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, they, they, they do this stuff in shifts and I was the first shift. So there's no overlap to kind of compensate for this. Everybody's starting at once. They have like four techs and a nurse or two on duty. And you've got like 24 chairs, so they've just got to get everybody started when they can. I usually got started on the earlier side compared to some other people because I had a longer prescription. But yeah, you know, you wait 10, 15 minutes and you sit there and I brought a book. They also have TVs set up for every chair with uh, one of those really fun, almost useless hospital style remotes where you can just scroll through channels up or maybe down and you have a volume button and that's about it. Um... And there's no TV guides. You have to just learn it, (laughs) which was fine. Um, This particular dialysis center, also you could bring in, um, this is dating it, but a VHS tape or a DVD even. They were very modern. Laserdisc? 
No, I don't think they had laser discs. They'd missed the window on that because this is about 99, 2000. So you, if you brought in a video, they could put it in. But sometimes two people brought in videos and then they had to decide whose was going to get watched because there was only the one channel you turn into tune in to the video channel that you're going to be on. So maybe you start watching TV, or in my case, you read your book, and they come over, and then they might need to program your machine, which probably doesn't take that long, but usually, and usually they've done it ahead of time. And then they, uh, they swab off your arm, and they... That's to sterilize it. Yeah, they sterilize your arm, and they, um, they cannulate you, which is what it's called when you insert a needle into a blood vessel. And how big is this needle? When I started, very, very first started back on dialysis, both the few times before my transplant and then for the several first several weeks or so after this transplant failed, they used smaller needles. Needles are measure, measured by gauge, and the, uh, the higher the number, the larger the gauge. So I was eventually using 18-gauge needles, which are really big. Um, so what would be the needles that people are used to in the hospital for like a blood draw or getting a vaccine? What kind of gauge needle is that? I actually don't know the number, but if I had to guess, it's probably around an eight. Okay. Maybe. And then like if you've ever had to give yourself a shot or you get like a vaccination, those little pinprick, like literally that thin, those are very, very small, like a four gauge needle or something like that. 18 gauge is about a millimeter in diameter, which you know, a millimeter is small, but going into your arm is very, very big. Okay. And um, the techs are good at doing this. Yeah. Correct? Did, were there ever any problems? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, there's always going to be problems. Having a natural fistula like I do is beneficial for a lot of reasons. It's more resilient. It's less prone to infection. And it's, I think, maybe easier to actually cannulate. But... Because it's a blood vessel and you're using a sharp object that you want to poke into like the top and then slide into just this tube, it's easy to maybe miss or just nick the top or go all the way through to the other side or a variety of other things. When you do the kind of thing where you don't actually just slide into the blood vessel, like you go all the way through or do something else that basically causes bleeding, it's called infiltration. And that's, that's an uncommon, but it's not unheard of. It's a herd of problem on dialysis. And when you say herd of, did this ever happen to you? Several times, yeah. Okay, so, so what happens? Well, usually it's painful, and then they can kind of stop and restart. One time, there was a really bad time because this would have been, I've been on dialysis for several years at that point, and the tech seemed like they were in a hurry, and that happens, and they're very professional, and they're good, and she just kind of like shoved the needles in and pressed start and ran off to help somebody else. And that's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to, you know, stay with your patient and make sure everything's okay, and I had said that hurts, which it's not supposed to do, um, especially because they often numb your skin before putting the needles in, and she ignored it or didn't hear it or I think ignored it and was busy doing her own thing and ran off and was helping another patient who was having some actual issue. But the needle that she had infiltrated me with was the return needle. The, the, the needle bringing the blood back to you from the machine. Yeah. 
And so that was especially bad because it was taking my blood out, cleaning it, and pumping it back not into a blood vessel, but just into my arm, into the tissue. And I guess I should have maybe said, hey, this might be gross, listeners. Uh, It was extremely painful because then I was having... Um, a lot of just fluid, my blood, but still fluid forced at very high volume into my arm. And it really hurt. And it kept hurting. And I said, hey, hey, I need help. And I was waving my arm and everybody was busy. And the room was just big enough that like nobody could quite hear me. And she was ignoring because she was doing her own thing. The tech that was supposed to help me in that area because she had who had caused the problem. Um, eventually, and it, it didn't take that long, but too long, three to five minutes, and it was getting more painful by the second, somebody came over, saw what was happening, said this was hurting, like my arm was visibly swollen, and they stopped the machine and took out the needle and did it correctly. And, you know, then I was able to dialyze regularly. But then all that blood just became a giant bruise all over my arm. Um, for several weeks. It looked extremely gross, and my arm hurt for days afterwards um, because it had been traumatized. It was bad. It was scary. It was a really, really not fun experience. Unfortunately, very rare for me. So assuming that that doesn't happen and everything goes correctly and they put you on the machine, then you're just sitting by the machine having your blood pumped through it for four and a half hours in this case, either reading a book or watching TV. Yep. What kinds of things happen? Is there, is there anything that could happen while that's going on? I should say there's a third option, which I took often, which was take a nap. Okay, right. Uh, because the process is very tiring. Some people like to have conversations with people in the chairs next to them. Um, I didn't for many reasons, the age gap being one of them. Uh, and mostly like the, <laughs> I was going to say the old people, but mostly the other patients because of that age gap kind of didn't know what to make of me and didn't intend, attempt to engage me either. Um, you might talk with the techs. If they had time, they might come around and kind of chat with you about stuff. At that particular center, I got I got along very well with the staff. I, I usually do. But in this case, kind of early on, a couple of just sort of chance interactions with some of them made it very clear that our politics were extremely different. And after that, then... We didn't talk a ton except, like, very, you know, friendly and politely about dialysis and dialysis alone. And we- that's, that's a little bit, that is awkward. These are people who are your caretakers and you are completely in their power during right. these, these hours. As we just discussed, you need their help sometimes. If- yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was, we, it was fine, but it was weird. And I feel like I've said that a number of times. You know, this was fine, but it was weird. And it was fine, but it was weird because I had, you know, I had books I wanted to read. I had TV I wanted to watch. Want is maybe not the right word there, but... Um, TV that filled the time. TV that fills the time. I, you know, I was a loyal viewer of a number of daytime um, game shows. I think that's probably when I saw so much of The View. The View had maybe started around that time. I think I saw a lot of the beginning of that, the first several seasons of that show. And and other things, just like, oh, this is happening now. Okay, I'll check that out. Or I, I would watch the news sometimes, the local news. More what I was asking with this question was, what kinds of things can happen with the machine or medically while you're running it? Is that usually just totally smooth? Is there anything that comes up? Usually, yeah. The machine is perfectly smooth. Occasionally, there are 
little hiccups. Um, your blood pressure is being taken regularly and automatically, and the machine registers that, and it will usually sound an alarm, so it's every 15 minutes, every half hour, and your techs come over and check that, and that's a, a chance for them to check in with you, make sure you're doing okay. And so if your blood pressure is dropping really low, which, which can happen because they are dehydrating you, um, perhaps if you've gained actual weight instead of just fluid weight too, and so the differential is wrong, that you might, yeah, you might be close to passing out. That can happen. Um, sometimes you might actually pass out. That never happened to me, but uh, came close a couple of times. So my blood pressure dropped. So that will usually set off an alarm, and a tech will come over and say, hey, wake up, are you okay? And then they'll just maybe give you some saline or they'll slow down the dialysis process. Giving saline, that means giving fluid back to your body. Right, yeah, because you're getting too dehydrated and your blood pressure is dropping. Occasionally, there's some problem with the flow, like a needle starts sticking to the wall of the blood vessel or... I guess there can sometimes be clotting issues in the machine. I never had that problem. They give anti-clotting agents to prevent that, which can have other obvious side effects like you, hey, don't get scraped up or something because you've had this medication. Mostly it's pretty smooth. There are things that can happen. It's not that I said, I mean, you can start having heart problems or something like that, but for the large part, I only ever had minor issues. The story I told about the infiltration is probably the worst thing that happened to me during those, like, four and a half, five years of dialysis. Okay, so you do the run of dialysis. Yeah. So what happens? How do they take you off the machine? Well, your timer runs down to zero, an alarm goes off, because there's always beeping and alarms going off in a dialysis center. Tech comes over, and if they're available to do the process, which takes 15, 20 minutes then they go through the the sequence so they turn off the machine they take out your needles one at a time and put bandages on and if you're capable like i am you hold the bandages so that you don't bleed and and because it's a high volume blood vessel there's a lot of volume of blood there and they're big holes so you've got to really hold it so they might use a what's called a pressure bandage or some other things to really make it better and allow you to heal and clot, but they take the needles out, you hold it, they take your blood pressure sitting, and then they take your blood pressure standing. And if you're okay, you know, if you stand up and you are faint, then they say, hey, maybe sit down for a while. Or they might, you know, bring you an orange juice, uh, very rarely. Uh, and then they'll take your blood pressure again. And if you're fine, then, you know, they have procedures for all of those sort of things. But basically, they stop the machine, remove the needles, take your blood pressure twice, make sure you're okay. They probably take your temperature to make sure that maybe you're not running a fever, which might indicate some kind of infection starting. And then you weigh yourself. And when you write that down and see, okay, well, I started out at 62 kilos and now I'm at 60 kilos. Great. And then you say, peace out. See you Wednesday. And so you said you, you arrive at the clinic around six. Mm-hmm. What time are you leaving now with all this setup and the four-and-a-half-hour runtime and now all the getting-off process? Well, given that it was four-and-a-half hours, it should have been 10.30, but it's usually like 11, 11, 15. Okay. Because the runtime is four-and-a-half hours. The actually putting you on the machine is 15, 20 minutes, and taking you off the machine is 15, 20 minutes if everything goes smoothly. Okay, and then what do you feel like 
after dialysis? Well, it depends. During this time period, I was still pretty young and energetic in a way once I got stabilized. And it took me about six months to a year to really get used to the whole situation that was going on. But I had a couple things going for me. Like I said, I was young and also I was not having a ton of fluid removed. If you have to have four, five, six kilos, as some people do regularly removed from your body, that is a major shift in your body chemistry happening in only three, four, five hours. And so you will feel especially drained and weird. Drained, haha. Haha, yes. Uh, this was the ongoing pun of my life. People would say, how are you feeling? And I would say drained. And they're like, haha, but seriously. I'm like, no, really. Um, it's an exhausting process. Uh, but like I said, I... I was younger and pretty energetic, and also I was not having to have a lot of fluid removed. There were times where it was like one kilo or less because I was uh, exercising really regularly at the time also. And so... What were you doing to exercise? Uh, I had started fencing at Lawrence, and so I, um, I joined this uh, local fencing club, which uh, is still around in Portland, and they are still training Olympians and doing all kinds of great things that was... Not the track I was on, but I was fencing, gosh, two, three, sometimes four nights a week, um, really enjoying myself, getting a lot. But, you know, you sweat a lot, and I was still, like, limiting fluids like you're supposed to when you're on dialysis. And so there were literally a couple of times where I came in to dialyze, and I had left at, let's say, 60 kilos, and I came in, and I was at 60.1. And so they had very little to remove. Anyway, because of all of those things, I would leave and I would usually be tired, but okay. There would be some times where maybe they'd had to remove more fluid or I just was under the weather anyway, and I would feel really, really exhausted. The first year or so, when I first started dialysis, um, I wasn't driving myself because I was not capable of doing that at all. And so someone would come pick me up and it was it was difficult. Sometimes it was apparent but they were working, sometimes as a friend of a parent. There was a long time period where we signed up for a, a public transportation for sick people thing. So it was a small bus that took like five of us each to our individual homes. Many people were in wheelchairs. That would be like about a two-hour trip back home. And then I would get into bed and sleep for six hours. Uh, that happened, that, that went on for months while I was getting used to dialysis. But once I was used to dialysis... I was driving and I would just like get in my car and either drive home or then to work to teach. So you mentioned that you have you have a restriction on fluid intake. Yeah. Can you talk about the other rules of dialysis in terms of diet and all the other stuff you have to do while you're on dialysis? Absolutely. The dialysis diet is fairly restrictive. Because you don't have working kidneys, you have to do sort of some of the work for them ahead of time in a way, where since your kidneys can't remove fluid and you're only removing fluid mechanically three times a week, you can't just take all the fluid you want into all the time. You just can't drink lots of water or beer or fruit juice or whatever it is you like to drink because that just goes in your body and stays there until you get to a machine to remove it. That's the biggest one. It's extremely noticeable. 
Uh, it's a major life transition for anybody. Most of us don't think about the fact that like, oh, I'm thirsty, I'll just drink something. Or, you know, I was working with teenagers at the time and I remember we had like a pizza party or something and it ended and there was half of a two liter. So one liter of say Coke or something left over. And um, we were saying, okay, somebody take the last slice of pizza. Who wants this Coke or something? And one of my students was like, oh, I'll take that. And he took the, the two liter and chugged it in like five seconds or whatever to show off. And I was stunned because that was like my fluid limit for one day. And he had just done that because he was just going to pee it out later because you just do that as humans. So that's the major one. And I remember pretty distinctly, this is going years ahead into the future. Yeah. When I knew you and we were on dialysis, we would sometimes be in the grocery store and we'd walk by those aisles of like all the fruit juices. Yeah. And you would look at those and sigh and say, when I have a transplant, I am going to go and get one of everything so I can finally try all the juice. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's just not cost effective to have that sitting in your fridge for two weeks while you drink shot glasses of it, essentially. Um, so there's a major fluid restriction. And then there's all these other sort of, they attempt to make the common sense, but you have to be very careful about your fruit vegetable intake because of potassium risks. I think we discussed earlier that potassium can build up in your muscles and your heart is a muscle and that would be really, really bad because it can stop those muscles, including your heart. So you have to make sure you get some potassium, but really not very much. And specifically, you're essentially prohibited from having bananas and potatoes. Not prohibited, you could have a french fry, which is a problem because of sodium also, but Potatoes and bananas are like the big giant no-nos that everybody knows you're not supposed to have because they're the highest in potassium foods. So you have to restrict fluids and potassium. You also have to be conscious of phosphorus because you're at risk of um, bone disease, essentially, osteoporosis because of dialysis because it can leach things out of your bones. It's a very harsh process on your body, in case that's not clear. Uh, so phosphorus is in things like nuts, in colas, and a couple other things. Um, and usually, I was taking calcium supplements even to kind of make up for stuff, but um, so you're restricted on that. And then protein is a thing that we all need, but also is uh, extra protein is filtered out by your kidneys, so you have to restrict that. And they have all these analogies like, you know, size of a deck of playing cards and things like that that you're supposed to be aware of and not eat too much of. So it's it's really, it's a diet that's like moderation and everything and be really aware of these certain things. And this one thing, fluid, yeah, basically just don't drink anything. Well, you've listed a lot of things. And besides fluid, you haven't men mentioned the one, except in passing, that I associate the strongest with the dialysis diet, which is sodium. Right. So sodium is an issue for... A lot of reasons. It's you know not great for your heart. It's the reason we all should watch our sodium. It's it's tough, but one of the other reasons is just sodium makes you thirsty, and then you need to drink more, and so they want you to you know be careful about that. And sodium also makes you retain water. Exactly. As a doctor, I once saw explained to me as he was drawing a diagram on the paper that goes on the exam table, because he was a professor. Uh, sodium and water are best friends, and they always want to just get together and hang out all the time. So if you just have one, then the other one's going to want to come find it. So yeah, those, those things, lots and lots of restrictions. 
And I, I would say just because sodium is the one I always remember, because if you're trying to watch sodium in the modern world, trying to get ingredients for Oof. groceries to cook, going out, forget it. Yeah. It's the biggest thing to watch out for. That's always the warning if you're going to go over to somebody's house and they ask, what's Ari's diet like? And you say he can't have sodium. Oh, don't worry. I never add salt to anything. Yeah. <laughs> Red yeah. flag. They don't know how much sodium is in their food. Right. There's there's sodium in everything we eat. Often just processed foods, it's added there. But the only food that I know of that like you could just standard easily buy at the grocery store that doesn't have it um, is rice or white rice. You know, which is fine, but it's just rice. Okay, so we've talked about the, the dialysis process, the mm-hmm. dialysis diet. You you were going to this three times a week. Yeah. And we know you were fencing. Yeah. What else were you doing? What was your life at this time? Well, there was a bit of an evolution. You know, I come home, I'm super sick, and then they let me, of necessity, like I said, get sicker for a little while. And then I start on dialysis, at which point I'm very, very sick. And over the course of... I'm going to say about two years, I slowly added more and more things. And when you say you're living at home with your parents. Oh, yeah. I am back in my high school bedroom, which has not been updated. I mean, it had only been a few years. That's where I stayed over breaks and my previously mentioned extended visits off from college. But, yeah, I'm back living at home with my parents. So I, I slowly start adding things back. I added fencing, which... At first was a couple nights a week and then got to be the three or four, like I talked about, plus tournaments on Saturdays. And then pretty quickly, I also added uh, private lessons with one of my former teachers in Portland. And that was awesome. Got to see him once a week. I, you know, started studying seriously again and, you know, yet again had music as a focus to rely on, distract me, and um, be a constant in my life. And so I did that. And then after I'd been home for about a year, I was getting pretty antsy. And, you know, at that point, I had known for several years that what I wanted to do as a musician was to teach and not just teach private lessons. And I, I guess. I had been teaching a couple of private students that by that point as well, but I called a couple of friends of mine in the area and I said, Hey, you know, I've, I've done some marching band instruction before. That's a a skill area of mine. And I'd really love to do that if you know. And I, I even said, and I'll work for free. I just really need to get out of the house. And so somebody said, Oh yeah, talk to my friend. He's working at this school called Westview. I knew Westview. It was a rival high school of my high school. It was in the same district. And it had opened, in fact, I want to say my senior year of high school. So it was, it was the new fancy school. So I called them up and said, hey, here's who I am. I'd love to come help you out. And they're like, for free? Be here at 8? You know, like, no problem. So I went to summer marching band band camp in late August. And then I said, at the end of that, they they were like, okay, thanks. This was really helpful. And I said, well, if it's possible, I'd love to keep coming to rehearsals. And they said, yes, please. And then after I did that for a while, I was still feeling antsy and had the energy. And so I said, would it be possible I came a couple times a week during school? What's the schedule? Can I help out during class? And they were like, going, who is this kid? What is he doing? Um, And, you know, I was valuable to them. I was teaching stuff to the kids that was working. 
And so they said, sure. And so I came in and then marching band season ended. And again, it was the kind of thing where they were like, all right, well, thank you. We really love you. Hope you come back next year. And I said, you know, honestly, I'm pretty good at marching band, but my real skill area is in symphonic or orchestral percussion, which is, I know, actually the focus of your program, not percussion, but music. Would it be okay if I just kept coming and worked with your concert bands? And they were like, uh, yeah. So I did. And I became sort of the de facto percussion instructor at the high school. And if you're in someplace like the major parts of Texas or parts of the Midwest or other or certain like arts focused high schools in like New York City and, and other parts of the country, you might have like a band director and assistant band director and then maybe a percussion instructor or maybe some other instrument specialists. But everywhere else you maybe have one person who does everything. And so and that would be the band director. That would be the band director. And that's the normal way it's supposed to be. But they got to have me as a percussion instructor and I got to have them um, as, as my kids and, then, and also as my colleagues uh, for four years until after my second transplant. And it was fantastic. Um, I got to really teach. Westview was a very focused symphonic music program. It was a contender for the state band title Every year I was there, it had been so before I got there, and it continued to be so after I left. Um, it was a big deal. The band director I was working with was one of the you know big deal guys in the Oregon band world and still kind of is, even though he's retired now. I got to work with him and learn from him. I got to work with these very motivated, excited, smart, interesting kids you know, for the most part, but they're kids. So that's what happens uh, for four years. And it was, it was fantastic. It was a great experience. As a result of that experience and people that I knew while that was going on, then my second year there, some of the people said, hey, there's this new drum and bugle corps, which is a summer competitive marching activity with a long history uh, called the Oregon Crusaders. And we would love it if you maybe came and checked us out. We, we might be interested in having you be one of our instructors, like do the um, what's called the front ensemble or the pit percussion, which is the, the percussion section that doesn't march, that plays the symphonic instruments that I am best at teaching and doing. And so I went and checked it out and did that then for three years, and that culminated in... You did that for two years. And then I went and did that for two years, and that culminated in the Corps winning the world championship for their division in 2004. So that was super exciting and really fun. I mean, Westview also won titles. It was just it was a good time all around. Like, I was having fun fencing. I was having fun teaching at Westview. I was having fun teaching the Crusaders. I mean... Teaching is one of those kinds of things that's up and down all the time, um, but I learned a lot. I met really cool people. I, I felt like I was making a difference and was part of a good team. I was doing all of those things during that time. And you mentioned that you helped the Corps win a world championship in 2004. Did anything else interesting or of note happen when you were with the Oregon Crusaders? Well, we met. Um, <laughs> that was a thing that happened, which is... Obviously, probably one of the most significant events to happen in my life. And I think we should probably talk about that more in the next episode. Sure. 
But I wanted to get back a little bit now that we've described, you know, your day-to-day life while you were on dialysis Mm -hmm. and the medical side of it and the non-medical side of it. Some extra questions about dialysis? Yeah, sure. What is it like if you want to travel either for work (laughs) or to go on vacation if you're a dialysis patient? (laughs) Um, Anybody who's ever had to deal with this knows why I'm laughing. I think the nicest way to say about it is that it's an enormous pain in the butt. Travel is possible when you're on dialysis. They are so happy to tell you that. Oh, you can travel. It's fine. We do it all the time. And it's fine. I guess my watchword here is it's fine, but it's weird. So all dialysis centers, I think, are probably required by some sort of regulation to have a seat or two available at any given time. And that's for a lot of different things. Um, Maybe somebody is suddenly sick. Maybe there is a sudden need for a transfer. So they have to have a, have this chair set aside for a variety of reasons. And one of the primary reasons is because you might have a visitor from somewhere else. And most, if not all, dialysis centers are corporate entities. So they, they're part of like a large conglomerate or group of dialysis centers. It's a business. And so usually, if you go to a center run by... X company and you say, I'm going to be traveling to California, this area, they will say, oh, well, here are the centers you could go to, and they try to send you to one of their centers. And that does make things easier because records are more easily transferable and stuff. But I'm getting a little bit off topic from what you're asking. You can travel. There are all these centers that have chairs, but you have to do all the setup yourself. Or in my case, in at least early on, my mother had to do all the setup herself. So you have to find a center, and your center will help, but it's difficult. This is also, the internet exists, but at the time, like, this is just at the beginning of Google. So, like, Google exists, but not everybody has a website yet. Not everybody's figured out maybe I should have a searchable function for finding a center yet. We are very much in the early stages of Web 1.0. Oh, very much. I mean, it was maybe edging into 2.0 by the time I stopped, but, yeah, it was not great. So you have to find a center that is near to where you're going to be, and then you have to call them and say, hey, do you have a chair that's available, that is time convenient to me on my vacation, that I can come to this many times, this is my prescription, and if they say sure, then you say, okay, I would like to do that, and you sort of reserve a seat, and then comes the hard part. (laughs) And that part may have taken weeks at that point, but then comes the hard part where you have to coordinate insurance, which is just a massive headache, because are they in network, are they out of network, what's going on, and dialysis is ridiculously expensive, Um, like hundreds of thousands of dollars all the time. So there's that issue. And then uh, you have to coordinate medical records. So there's HIPAA things that need to be signed. There's just a lot of paperwork going back and forth. And at any time, somebody could be like, oh, sorry, we can't do that. Someone else got the chair. Right. That's all before you ever travel. So then once you travel, and I did this, I don't know, several, several times while I was there. Um, My family all went to Hawaii once, and so I dialyzed there. And we went to California several times. Uh, My grandparents lived in California, so we went there. And I most remember the California trip because once you get there, you have to find the center, and then you come in, and you may, in fact, have a packet of medical records in hand. 
or they've been sent electronically. But I remember having a packet of stuff in hand. You're sick because the way dialysis works is sort of in terms of your health is you go on the machine and you feel terrible and then you're on the machine for a while and it makes you feel better but it exhausts you and then you sort of spring back from that within six to eight hours and then you feel kind of normal for a day as then you start to feel less and less good until you feel terrible and then you have dialysis again and start it all over so you get to the center and you're at the total bottom of you're this swing. peak feeling bad right yeah um <laughs> And you have to sort of be very specific and on and aware of what your prescription is and a lot of other details. Um, yeah, it's a new place and they're just getting your records and they're trying to figure out your prescription. And in my experience, they always have at least one thing wrong that you've got to correct. And they have their own procedures. Maybe they do the temperature before weighing you. Maybe they weigh you and then tell you to go back to the waiting room. That's not a big deal, but it's all offset. So so you you do that and I the reason I was going to say I remember this California trip really well is because there were two things that were unique about this center. One was they occasionally provided dialysis for the local prison and on the day I was there they were doing that which meant that the bed they were originally give me I always say bed but it's a chair. It's sort of a medical bark lounger. Um the chair that they were going to give me, they couldn't because a prisoner needed it, which means they had to put me in a separate location, which meant that they were all flustered by that. And also there were armed guards in the dialysis center. They were doing the prisoner stuff in a like separate wing, but it was weird um, and a little bit uncomfortable and scary. You know, I mean, that whoever those people were, they needed dialysis. They get to have dialysis, and they probably weren't having a very good life at that point, but it's weird to have armed people around when you're feeling very vulnerable, which is a, a feeling that you have when you're on dialysis. So that was happening. All the usual, is this right stuff was going on. Like, I, how does this work? This works different from my stuff. And then from the very beginning, they, they were very concerned that my insurance would pay from the very beginning. And we had already called. It had already been completely taken care of. And it got to the point when we were entering, because they didn't recognize our insurance or something, that several of my family members, I think my parents and my grandfather too, said, listen, he needs dialysis if for some reason his insurance doesn't pay, and it's going to because we have cleared it with them, we will pay for it. Just flat out, it, we will cover it. Don't worry. And they were like, oh, okay. And so then I was on the machine in this you know, strange location, and I was... For some reason, my blood pressure was rising, perhaps because there were armed men in the dialysis room. I don't know, but I was not doing well. And an administrator then, about halfway into my run, kept coming in and sort of interrogating me, like, are you sure you're going to be able to pay for this? And the way he was acting, it seemed like if I couldn't prove it right then, and I had no way of doing that. I'm not sure I even had a cell phone yet at that point. He he was going to order me to be removed from the machine immediately. And it was extremely stressful. And so I had, on the one hand, text saying, oh, wow, your blood pressure is going up. That's not good. This usually happens when you're on dialysis. And I was saying, no, I don't know. That's making me a little anxious. And then sort of in the other ear, I've got this guy going, I need $10,000 right now or I'm going to stop this medical procedure you're getting. Um, that was not fun. And I think this is probably a good point. This is not the main focus of the podcast, sure. but I do think it's a thing we should acknowledge because this is a podcast about disability, but 
humans are diverse and have a wide range of spectrum of experiences. Yeah. And so a lot of people, in addition to being disabled, have other other challenges they face in life. And so there's a role that class and privilege play in different stories. Oh, yeah. We talk about, you talked about your family just saying, if insurance won't pay for it, we will pay for it. Right. And your family isn't wealthy, but there's sort of a middle class existence that allows for that. We talked about your grandfather during, when he wanted to give you a transplant, paying for tests out of pocket yeah. so they could move faster, that you were in a position that had a family that could do that for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And that... You know, we're also talking about prisoners coming in to do dialysis and that there are lots of things that could have made your story a lot worse. And it's weird to talk about that even though you have a disability, you had advantages in this system that I think it would just be better for us to acknowledge if we're going to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And there's lots of stuff that plays into that, too, that the typical dialysis patient is really, really, really not me, especially at that time. Right. Like we said, I was 21 22 when I'm starting. So I'm very young. I'm white and I'm relatively healthy. And the average dialysis patient in America is older than that, probably 40, 50 plus, black and diabetic. And that's really different for me. And that's not to say, you know, because they're a different race, they have a different socioeconomic status. But that is also typically true that usually they, uh, the average dialysis patient is usually poorer than my family was, partly because, you know, medical stuff is extremely expensive. And, you know, sometimes there's correlations between, I don't know, nutrition and stuff. But I, I, I feel like I'm starting to speak further and further and further from my expertise. So um, basically, this is all to say, I completely agree. We, it, it's, Still a weird thing that I can I tell that story and I remember, oh yeah, it's not like my family could have written a check for that that day, but they could have done some kind of payment plan and it would not have been great, but they would have been okay. So, right, and this yeah. is a disability that sort of can make people who would already be vulnerable even more vulnerable. So and, much, yeah. So I think it's good that we acknowledge that in telling this story, that there are lots of stories that aren't ours to tell yeah. but are still important. Oh, very much so, yeah. The last question I have about this period of time is, did you have any other surgeries? Yes. Yes, I did. The biggest one was actually what's called a nephrectomy, where the same doctor who I had been seeing in high school, the same nephrologist, was concerned that my failed transplant would um, turn into what uh, what he called a pus pocket which is a phrase that I will never forget, and I wish I could. Uh, and so he he wanted it removed before it turned into that. So they did a nephrectomy, which is a removal of the uh, of the kidney. And the doctor who did it was somebody I had not met before, and he seemed to be kind of in a rush to just do the whole thing. Oh, hey, I'm taking this out. Okay, great. Um, and I remember. I remember it, it's weird to feel like a surgery is a rush job. Not that he, yeah, it, not not that I think that he did like a bad job because his job was to take something out, and he did um, took it out. But I remember like I think it was the first time I had staples, and that's not an indication of anything that I know of that it, whether it's rush or not. But um, I had staples, and they seemed he seemed to kind of not really be that interested if they were in too long or in too short or just um, just kind of, okay, well, I took it out. Great. Oh, all right. You're, you're, you're not sick with infection. Great. Bye. Um, 
was very, very perfunctory, which maybe is all it needed to be. But <laughs> I had had that done. And so I was back to only having my two very small, shriveled, poor little native kidneys once more. Um, and you're down a ureter. And yeah, that's right. And I was down a ureter. And I think that's it. There were several other things that happened later, but not during that time. That was it. Our audience might wonder this. Is it typical to take the transplanted kidney out after it fails? To my understanding, no. But maybe sometimes. Uh, like I said, I'm not totally sure, but I think no, it isn't because often when I've talked to transplant coordinators, they have mentioned this idea that they have patients who are on their second, third, fourth, fifth transplant, and they start pointing to their abdomen, and they say, okay, well, this is the first one, this is the second one, here's the third one, and just sort of pointing to different parts. And also when I've, I've then later gone in for further surgeries or talking about my medical history with various people, and I say, well, and then they did an nephrectomy, and they say, oh, was something wrong with it? And I was like, no, not that I knew of, it just failed, and they always go, Huh, okay. And they never remove the native kidney when they do a transplant, typically. No, not at all. There's no need to. There's space in your abdomen for obviously many more, and to remove it is just would be a really, really long surgery for no benefit whatsoever. Okay, and I think that's all we're going to talk about for this era in your life. (laughs) Okay. Um, Next episode, we will move into talking about the lead up to your second transplant. Okay. And we might also talk about, um, because we hinted at it, how you and I met during that time period. Yeah. But what we have right now is um, we're going to go into listener questions. And oh, we only okay. have one again. And this is a question from Tim. And he asks, I'm curious to know what Ari thinks his life might be like had he not had Alport syndrome. <laughs> um, boy, that's a giant question. It is. It's obviously super hard to say. I think that my life would have been a lot more boring. In good, but also in bad ways, I think. Uh, When I was younger, in fact, especially during the time period that we're discussing, I started to really sort of fantasize about this. That seems expected. (laughs) Yes, super normal. Um, I started to kind of think like, well, if only this, if only that. And I knew it was impossible and I knew it was sort of an exercise in futility, but I sort of couldn't help myself. And so one of the things that I thought about was, well, I would have just graduated high school on time. And I would have had that hanging over my head. And maybe I would have felt more comfortable dating, which was a thing that kind of bothered me. And I, I grew out of that. But with that sort of in my back pocket, I think that like I probably would have graduated high school when I did. I probably would have still applied to the same college as I did. One of the main differences is I would have just gone. You know, it wouldn't have been... Right after transplant, it would have been, wouldn't have been that I was trying to audition while getting much sicker. Um, I would have prepared that audition during my senior year of high school instead of the next year. Uh, sometimes I wonder because I did have like an extra nine months or so how that impacted things. Like there were times where it felt like I got extra practice time because I was sick and home alone so often. But at the same time, often when I was sick and home alone, I was not practicing because I was so I was sick. So it's really hard to say in that way. But I kind of assume I would have graduated high school and gone to probably the same school for all the same reasons, and I would have graduated. Um, I think it's obviously then now, looking back, you and I would not have met. No, not at all. Which would have been <laughs> an unknown to that version of Ari, enormous tragedy in my life. So um, I think I would be, I would probably would have married somebody else. Um, 
possibly even be divorced. Uh, and that's, that's not fun. One of the reasons we wouldn't have met is because probably after graduating from Lawrence, I would have gotten a job teaching music as, as a band director in the Midwest somewhere probably in Wisconsin or Minnesota or Illinois. Uh, that's where a lot of Lawrence graduates go. I was, at that point especially in my life, super happy to be out of Oregon. I like, I like Oregon. I did then, but I needed to be somewhere else. Um, but who knows? Maybe if Oregon hadn't been the place where I was sick all the time, maybe I would have been happy to come back. I don't know. So I would never have come to New York. Um, I would just be doing that. Uh, and I think that you know, many things would be the same, but I wouldn't have gone to college so many times and I would not have met as many interesting people as I have. I would have a much less diverse teaching resume. I feel like I was kind of giving my teaching resume earlier. It would have been a much more sort of straightforward, traditional middle-class path. The one that like I always thought I was on until I suddenly realized I wasn't. Now it's time for my final question of the episode. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling right now? Uh, pretty good. I've been sleeping weird. I don't think that's related to anything other than it being summer. And um, I've been drinking a lot of water during recording this episode because my throat is dry. But I mean, that's really me looking for things to say to make this more interesting. I'm fine. That's good. And yeah, it makes so me happy to say. We'll, we'll pick up next time on the Kidney Cast. Uh, if you want to send us a question or any feedback, we are kidneycast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at KidneyCast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. All of our episodes and the show notes for each episode are available on my website, lauramorris.com. That's L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. So if you want to stop by and listen to any episodes, you could also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And please, please, please recommend our podcast please. to anybody. And it really helps us if you would write us a review on iTunes. It, however they rank it with the algorithms, it's really helpful. Yeah. So we'd really appreciate it. And we just appreciate hearing from anybody. We want to know what your questions are. We want to know what your feedback is. Um, but for now, thank you so much for listening to the KidneyCast. And thank you, Ari, for talking to me. Sure, thank you. <laughs>